0: Hey y'all, this is Monica. This is the second highlight reel of my three-part conversation with Ian Davis on the multipolar world order. Enjoy.
1: The multilateralism, really what it means is just many di- more nations having a say in decision making. So you might think that the for example, so you could say that the G20 is more multilateral than the G7, because you know, obviously there are twenty nations making contributing to the decision making. Um, multipolar is a slightly different concept because that really is about breaking the con- the world up into blocks. So, so if you look at the G20, for example, there are five groups in the G20. So the groups, I think, two to or groups two. Uh, three, four, and five are broadly split in geographical terms. But groups one and two are split in more kind of what I guess you might call aligned political and economic interests.
0: Yeah, they're like the bulge bracket regional hegemons. But, kind yeah.
1: Of. Yeah. So you've got the bulge bracket one and two, and then yeah. you've got then you've got geographical split in the other three groups. So
0: I mean oh, you that, you can almost think of that. As, like, a corporate hierarchy where you have kind of a division head and then the divisions that report to them. Of course, they don't think of it that way,
1: but. Yeah. So, I mean, so what you could, so the way of thinking about that is the G20 overall, if all of those countries are equally participating in decision making, is more multilateral than the G7, but the G20 is more multipolar than the G7 because the G7 is just one group, whereas in the G20, you've got four or uh, five distinct groups.
0: And and one thing that I did get out of this, I think it was an Olaf Schultz comment that he made maybe at the World Economic Forum thing, something like that. I, I don't have the actual quote, but I have what my impression was of it, that it was uh, also folded in, whereas the multilateral thing or the previous um, paradigm was more focused on nation states as being the, the dominant entity of control, whereas... And this is very World Economic Forum. It moves towards a sort of stakeholder concept, which in, in your, I think one of the things that you said was basically the nation-state one, the oligarchs, or the G7 one, the oligarchs had influence. Whereas with the G20, they, they more have control. And I feel like they fold into that with the World Economic Forum, that all of these stakeholders are really, say, philanthropies, labor unions... Corporations, stuff like that, that look like they're representing different factions of society, but really are kind of political entities that serve the agenda that exploit those factions. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I know you're a Brzezinski fan. That's what I got out, of, or not fan, but um, yeah, I know, uh, yeah,
1: I was you, <laughs> yes,
0: that you are, that you find his work illuminating in understanding yeah. how things have progressed. In his crisis of democracy, which was, I think, one of the first things the Trilateral Commission did, he got a bunch of people to write these essays about how what, what went wrong in the 60s. And then he says, as a takeaway, well, in order to control democracy, we need to make sure every single person, and this is me paraphrasing, every single person is a part of a an institution that is non-democratic but that their livelihood or their interests are tied to so that if it's a corporation or a labor union or a university or whatever it is they'll go along with that and they won't really have that kind of a say now some of the people who contributed to that that like um collection of essays objected to that as being the takeaway. But of course, the reason he put it together was so that he could. And I feel like this is, uh, along with many other things that are a combination of Brzezinski's, um, I would say, plan, others would say predictions, Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, part of that, where it takes the power away from the nation states, away from anything democratic. And once you start that, you really have then, then they actually, I would say, it's not even multipolar anymore. It really will feed into the top of a of a level of self interest at the very top of oligarchs that we will we probably won't even really be aware of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's a very interesting person to sort of as a kind of uh, a lens through which to look at what's happening at the moment. Um, you know, obviously, not only for his effect at the, you know geopolitically and and uh, towards the end of the 20th century but also the fact that some of his observations have been a very telling for example you know he's Brzezinski it's Brzezinski that talked about the game meaning you know the geopolitical game who made Ukraine a a very important part of certainly Russia's global geostrategic ambitions and you know made made it uh, a, a very important part of the US's ambitions for the Eurasian sort of landmass. It's not a continent. It's more than that. It's a, you know, it's a multiple cult- continent in a way. But, um, you know, so I think he's interested in that that perspective. But also, you know, obviously his involvement with the Trilateral Commission and their involvement with with funding and certainly encouraging the development development in China um, you know, and I think it's interesting that something I think that stands out for me from, uh, I think it's in the Grand Chessboard, where Brzezinski, oh no, I think it's in the Technocratic era, where, where Brzezinski speaks about the fact that uh, nation states, that the, the pri- basically private corporations have already eclipsed nation states in terms of their ability to master resources and, and to control resources and, and in their strategic planning. So. I think the difference between the kind of what we might call the multi-stakeholder partnership model is that in the same way that the idea of multilateralism is supposed to supposed to give nation states e- an equal say, I mean, obviously not all, but you know, you wouldn't expect, for example, the Solomon Islands to have an equal say to the U.S. on on certain subjects, because obviously the the U.S. is representing a far greater body of people. So, you know, I mean, that's only reasonable and fair, perhaps. But nonetheless, the idea of multilateralism is that nation-states have, um, relatively speaking, equal say. The idea of of multi-stakeholder capitalism, which is something that Brzezinski kind of highlighted again in the technotronic era is that corporations have an equal stat equal say with political bodies and governments so in a multi-stakeholder setting you know what um, blackrock say is as important as what the us government says they're on an equal footing that's that's the point of the partnership now i would argue That, you know, given something, a company like BlackRock that's got, I don't know, what is it, eight point eight point seven or 9 trillion dollars? I
0: mean, I've read 10.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 10. Yeah. I mean, who knows, really? Right, right, right. At that point. (laughs) Who knows?
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: but they they can obviously have the ability to control resources, which, which is significant on a scale that's significantly greater than the GDP of many nation states. So if we're just talking about brute economic force, and I don't think that's necessarily the only, it, that's not the only factor. There are other factors that play into the exercising of geopolitical power. But nonetheless, having, being able to marshal and having oversight of resources on that scale gives you, I would suggest, significant political clout as well
0: and would you say that this idea of the multipolar world order the G20 could be like um, a front or a face job like it looks like there are 20 so you have like i mean I, i'm sure guatemala would not be in the G20 but say sweden or somebody's in the G20 and it looks like you have this more equal playing field that you have all these countries and it, it either and it could potentially mask the outsize influence of the oligarch I mean I don't know how to pay like global Mm, corporations mm. or these non-governmental entities that are that really dwarf any impact that Swedish you know president who's like getting all the fanfare and everything I mean she's obviously just saying something people tell her to say you Uh, know I just yeah
1: yeah I mean I I think that the 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 thing is that when the UN was first established, it was established as a, a as a public private partnership. It, it was it was set up by the by the Rockefellers really, and their partners. It was and you know people like the Carnegie Foundation and so forth. But I mean, the, really, it was led by the Rock, Rockefellers, and was created as a public private partnership. Now that was the idea from the very beginning. Now. Because, because of the influence of, of corporations and so forth. Now, now that is totally contrary to our perception of it. You know, I, I would say that our perception of the United Nations throughout the, the, certainly the sort of latter half of the 20th century and because there was a lot of debate about the United Nations when the United Nations was actually first set up. A lot of people were very opposed to it because they saw it as...
0: And they want it. And then the other people like Alger Hess and stuff, they wanted it to be, yeah. to have the power to tax and the power to exploit. It kind of reminds me of the Fed. Like you think of it as a public institution, but yeah. it's, it's not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could look at those arguments on a continuum, can't you? So at one end, they were the people that were saying that this should be basically a world government. Right. People like Alger Hiss. For sure. Like they were
0: outwardly they, saying outwardly, a guy named Cord yeah, yeah. Meyer wanted to run it, and yeah. he later ran Operation Mockingbird. I know JFK was kind of like, yeah. maybe.
1: <laughs> so, the, and, at, and at the other end of that spectrum, you had people that were just vehemently opposed to it, you know, just saying it's the end of national sovereignty and, and, right. and, and that. So you know as as often happens you know a compromise was met but in but but in the middle of that was a very strong influence from private capital private capital was what basically created the what went on to become the the administrative part of the of the u n so i mean this private capital was always involved with it. But we have always we've just perceived it purely as an intergovernmental organisation. That's the way that we, that that 99.9% of us think about it. But it was never that. It was all. It was always more than that.
0: Was it, was it, so when you say it was private capital was always a part of it and you specifically cited the Rockefellers, is that right? Is there anybody else you could specifically say was in on it from the beginning? I always thought of it like the Rhodes, Rockefeller, Rothschild, you know, contingent as being the, like it's every, it's that whole UK, US axis and anything more than
1: that. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at that, I mean, so you've got, who is funding this operation? So who's funding?
0: This, oh right, this it was you know, this, Rockefeller contributed that land in New York. I mean, I, I grew uh, yeah. up my father taught me that. For he was like, that's a Rockefeller project. That's yeah, right. So, it was really the Rockefellers. That's right. All right. Okay. Yeah,
1: but but also who's who? You know who's behind the? I mean, the Rockefellers obviously yeah. are in, independently wealthy in their own right. But I mean that network that Carol Quigley spoke about that that yes, Anglo American yes. network. Yes. Is you know, there are there are multiple corporations involved in right, Chase was his Ch- Yeah, Chase. And then yeah. but then you got JP Morgan and people and like
0: then that. they rope in the government, the US government to pay for it. So like the UN, the US government took a lot, like the countries wouldn't pay into it. And that's another thing my father used to always balk about. Like we pay for the UN and like other countries are supposed to pay us back. But that of course is just the Rockefellers getting somebody else to, you know, it's like Trump wants the Mexicans to build the walls. Like they're just getting somebody else to build the wall.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, normally, I mean, it, these these companies might be willing to invest. You know, I mean, corporations and and uh, oligarchs like the Rockefellers might be willing to invest some capital into it, but ultimately, they want that money back, and yes. they want and they want the ta- oh, yes. they want the taxpayer to pay for it. I mean, that's normally normally the way it works.
0: And the way they shape the world to benefit their other assets sometimes disconnects. You know, what they may lose in one place. I always think Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Or people who own like the newspapers, like they probably have, you know, more money in oil and gas, and they just need the newspaper to get people on board with policies that promote their other interests. But yeah, I mean, mean, media has been
1: a loss, loss maker for. Yes, of course. I mean, it's obviously
0: a propaganda machine. It's obviously a public relations (laughs) arm of certain enterprises. So uh one I, I see a quote here from Smoggy. Uh I don't know if that's pronouncing correctly, but uh he says yeah. basically that they're not um that the world is more and more economically integrated, but not financially or politically, and that there needs to be institutions emerging like that that could be outwardly controlled to some extent by a G20 consortium, but that stuff that's more politically sensitive has to have the appearance of simply just being influenced or guided more in the style of the G7. So I found in that, and maybe I'm misreading it, but I found in that the idea that the G20 model is a step towards like actual functioning world government and that I, I, on the one thing that you have absolutely pointed out, we talked about this last time, is this move towards even just a tiny little Universal financial tax, which you rightly pointed out in this article, like is not really going to be borne by the financial entities that we're supposed to have no sympathy about. But it's really the foundation of what Alger His wanted from the UN from the mm-hmm. beginning is like the ability to enforce the ability to tax, And then one thing that I thought of you, I was looking into something yesterday about the um french labor strike and exacerbating energy price problems in the uk in the eu i was reading about this yesterday and i was thinking about how labor unions around the world right now are really doing unsympathetic things which is unusual if you want to keep people on your side and I thought we're we're moving. you know the great reset really does have a lot to do with labor. They call it like the future of work, that kind of thing. And here, when we went to Zoom land, we eliminated. we pushed into the virtual world, forced into the virtual world a lot of stuff that people wanted to go to the office for. And now companies are having problems getting people to go into the office. And I say, That's very short-sighted because once you make your job not connected to your presence, your physical presence, it'll go the way of call centers. So here, almost all of our call centers are handled out of India. And it's because you can just make it remote. As soon as they make that totally remote, it's really going to impoverish a lot of people here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be... The foundation or the spark for a call for international labor laws for some kind of international minimum wage tied to a basket of goods in any one country tied to Mm. a synthetic currency, something like that. So I see emerging environmental standards are classic, you know, obvious, most obvious example of something that needs to have an international law. You know that that's being used right out of the report from Iron Mountain, which is like one of my favorite go-tos because it predicts basically everything. And uh, and so I see in that like what I think that maybe dovetails with this transition to the G20 is that they're they are serious about making real mm. laws that can be enforced.
1: Oh yeah, they're very very serious about it. Yeah, I mean I, I mean I think also there's an element of it. It's like anything that they're not going to. And one of the things that's most concerning is the speed of change that's happened as a result, I would argue, of the sanctions in, in, against Ukraine. Yes. Uh, against, against Russia. That has accelerated this transition incredibly. But um, generally speaking, they don't try and enforce everything all at once. You know, it's this, it's this they sort of drip feed, drip feed ideas out. So at the moment, for example, if we're talking about central bank digital currency, at the moment nearly every nation around the world has got is is at a various level of development um in terms of central bank digital currency and notably it was the the world bank i think put a report out which interestingly you know for some all of a sudden it is the western g7 nato aligned unipolar world order that is that is lagging behind in terms of developing central bank digital currency which normally they would be at the forefront of that kind of thing but all of a sudden, they're not. All of a sudden, they're lagging behind. And, and the East are, you know, Russia and China are surging ahead with that. And I and I think going back to what you were saying about in terms of, you know, establishing things like global tax systems and also about the future of work and the future employment, and you're quite right, there's been a lot of talk about that. I think the idea is, and we can look at people like some, some thinkers on the left certainly have been talking about this. A lot in terms of kind of what they what you might call utopian, you know, socialist utopia or a utopian socialism, is the idea of universal basic income, and I think that is where we're heading. And very interestingly, the, uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, I think it was last year, they put out a a kind of promotional thing called what was it called? Future, Future Scope, I think it was called. Um, and in that, I mean, it was very much. They were talking about a new world religion, which would be the, um, you know, based around the Earth Charter, and I think it was actually called Earthism. Oh um, my
0: god! They were,
1: talk, they were talking about everybody being on universal basic income. Um, I mean, and these are. I think we we you know we I mean, we shouldn't get carried away with this. These are ideas. They're they're floating ideas about where and trajectories about where they want to go. But that's letting us know where they want to go. And I think we would be foolish not to – not. and then if you then look at the, the actions and, and what's happened, certainly in terms of the sanctions, um, for example, then it's all heading in that direction. So we should – I think we can put these two things together. I think we can put their wishful thinking together with the actual events that have happened and, you know, take them more seriously. <laughs>
0: i do want to ask you about the ubi you know in thinking about this do you think the ubi is about making disempowering people and really limiting Mm. their resources reducing population ultimately or just making them more controllable what's your feeling about what it's really about for them
1: yeah i mean i think it's all about control it's it's all about i mean you if you think about it if you're totally reliant upon the state for your livelihood right so I mean, it's the same really as being on welfare, but being on nothing but welfare. Right. You're you're on nothing but welfare, so you're totally reliant upon the state for your income, even if you earn money independently. That money itself, if we have central bank digital currency, I mean, the nightmare scenario is the combination of central bank digital currency and UBI. You put those right, two right. Things, you put those two things together, and we've got you know, we're in deep, deep trouble. Yeah, because, because the plus,
0: that's a, you know, then it gets enforced the way YouTube does. You know, like yeah, a, you get yeah. censored for things that you say. Like, like, I get taken off of YouTube all the time. I get strikes on YouTube all the time. That's going to happen to my debit card.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's all, we've already seen this kind of thing happening in, for example, Canada. So if you, you know, when when they they froze people's bank accounts because they right. were expressing their And that was the- a
0: shot across the bow. That was a warning.
1: It's a, it's a warning, but it's also, you know, people see that thing, and, and, and all as far as that goes for most people is they go, oh, isn't that bad? You know, isn't that terrible? But, but that is the model. That is what they're building. That's what they're constructing.
0: I was reading about the um, kind of post enclosure era of the in the UK, and that there were laws about being able to move from one place to another, being able to work from one place to another. And then, if you know a factory opened up and they wanted to use you, they would, yeah, and they wouldn't yeah. obey the rules. But if you were the one who were instituting that, they could shut you out. I was shocked. I really have to read more yeah. about that enclosure situation. How it changed the world, really changed the direction. Um, but don't underestimate the power of being limited in that way. And I, I always I envisioned it in New York a decade ago when they were starting to do. They wanted to put a tax on sugary drinks, um, and and then it was just was pushing everybody into aspartame, which I was like, that's not better. But yeah. I thought at some point if they have digital currency, they're going to be able to tax your first sugary drink at 10%, but your third sugary drink at a hundred percent or three hundred percent. So not only just geographically, but decisions, choices. As soon as you I was worried about national health here because I thought they and and right after I said this, Bloomberg came out and he said, Well, now that we're paying for your health care, we get to decide what goes into your body and that's that whole totalitarianism but they know they need the enforcement mechanism at a really granular level and that's i think yes that's a, that that clarifies that answers the question for sure
1: yeah so i mean that they i mean i think people need to grasp just the level of control that these things would give them
0: And I'm wondering, there are a couple of things that I, you know, I always wonder if they're, if you think they're really done with such foresight that they're intentional or if they're a response to changing circumstances. And two of the things that I was thinking of when I was reading your article were the unsustainable debt and the rise of China. So I always go back and forth, thing like, did they go? Did Nixon open up China? Did we give China most favored nation trading status earlier than anybody else? Um, because they wanted China in a particular position, they wanted to have that tension between East and West, they wanted to bring up the East and push down the West so that it could integrate more easily, or did they see that China was inevitably going to be a powerhouse and they wanted to get a foot in the door? And then similarly, they have absolutely uh, pushed our debt to unsustainable levels at the same time that they shut down our economy. They clearly, that was the result of government action Did they do that particular thing on purpose? Did they deliberately make the debt impossible to cope with so that they could trigger a financial crisis and bring in a new currency? Or is this stuff just one paradigm comes to an end and they anticipate that and try to get ahead of it? What's your opinion on those two?
1: Well, I think with regards to China, uh, there's, I mean, also this is the way that we need to think about the people that are involved in this kind of thing. So a lot of people would have been working on safe, For example, Elon Musk, let's say, Elon Musk has got a a large investment in China, right, the Tesla factory in China. So Elon Musk, and I'm not saying he does, I'm just guessing here, but I mean, Elon Musk might just simply see it as an opportunity to get a market opportunity in China. Obviously, it's an absolutely enormous market. He can obviously get, you know, labor at a better competitive price in China than he could in the US. But also it gives him access to potentially to China's market, which is huge. So just from a a purely economic, for no other reason, just from a purely economic standpoint, that makes sense. But if you also want to be able to do something like for assist Chinese technological development, then you can also do it through things like foreign direct investment. So. There are some people I would suggest, and I would certainly suggest the Trilateral right. Commission, were very interested in establishing technocracy, and I'm with Patrick from Patrick yes. Woodview on this. We're very interested in establishing technocracy in China because its it's political system, which is, I mean, you know, not being not being disparaging to it, but, but let to China per se, but it hasn't got, uh, a, you know, what we might consider to be a democratic tradition. It has right. come from a kind of feudalist system.
0: Commanding shot, And we did that with Russia during the Cold War. Like they did psychological experiments that we were not really permitted to do, but we exploited their results. And, you know, I think that yeah. there was some some intention behind that. And like in Israel, they do some more surveillance stuff or tech stuff that we wouldn't wouldn't go well. But yes, yeah, so to have a, a place like that where you could do stuff like that as a stepping stone and then use that as an excuse to pivot. Towards it, because look, yeah. now it's too late.
1: Yeah, and, and also, I mean, the population is more uh conducive to accepting yeah. that kind of top-down control. Right. They're they they're accustomed to it. This yeah. isn't to say that there's no political debate in China, because there's a lot of political debate. No, in but
0: China. they don't have that history of individualism yeah. that we yeah. have.
1: Yeah, so they, you know, they got this Tianxia kind of idea. Of, uh, yeah, you know, so it's totally
0: reasonable. I actually think it's uh, uh, obnoxious of us to go to every country around the world and act like their culture has no you know
1: well certainly china i mean china's (laughs) cultures you know i mean it's you know arguably i mean it's been leading culture in the world for thousands of years isn't it so i mean you know it is very arrogant
0: and partly because it did not allow for individualism yeah
1: yeah yeah, very much perhaps
0: it could be argued
1: i mean yeah it could be it could certainly be argued i mean it's a certain different way of looking at things isn't it there's no kind of ontological kind of like kind of uh thought process in the sort of chinese mindset so i mean that that's that's a very we from in the west when we're looking at that we can't it's often very difficult for us even to to wrap our heads around that. yes and so and
0: the way you're putting like i'm thinking about it now yes there's absolutely no way to have to really understand that from the inside I, i it's actually an achievement to understand that it is so different but that that may be the genius in it, because it becomes like a different medium, like an agar or whatever, a different medium hmm. to for this experiment that you know we had an American experiment which precludes this experiment from happening here. So there yeah. they can take that um cultural medium and do a totally different kind of experiment,
1: yeah, and I, and I think so. what i'm what I'm basically saying is that there was an a, there was a a concerted effort to introduce technocracy to china um sure. yes. and but there was also a, you know an economic aspect in terms of you know like when kissinger went over first before nixon when kissinger went over there um what was on his mind? Now, he was representing the Trilateral, well, the Rockefellers and yeah. the Trilateral right. Commission. That's who he was representing. Yeah. He wasn't necessarily representing the United States. <laughs> no, I don't think right? so. So, but when, probably when Nixon went over, he was probably thinking, I mean, I don't know. This. Is no, I think so, because, because there's a
0: lot of hidden audio of Nixon.
1: Yeah, so I think. So and
0: they probably, did take him out. So he probably did have an idea of what he was doing for the American people. They did take him out.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think I think he's probably got a – what I'm trying to suggest is he's probably got a different mindset to yeah. to, his, to what he was doing in China compared to what Kissinger's agenda was. So they were probably two different things, you know? Right, so, but I
0: think Kissinger influenced Nixon, and Nixon was kind of a in all of that. But yes, yeah. his motives were – right, so the intention didn't have to be the same. But okay, yeah, yeah. but that definitely answers my question. It's like I, I think um, – Yes, they were intentionally doing something with China and they have continued to do that for decades, seems to me.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if you look, I mean, I think it's notable that somebody like, you know, like Clinton, who was also in the Trilateral Commission, he, lift, he lifted the embargo on China having what they were calling sensitive technology. So the U.S. wouldn't export sensitive technology to China, but it was Clinton that lifted that embargo. So, and Clinton's a trilateralist. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's a, you can, there's an agenda there. I mean, it's quite obvious that there's an agenda there. Yes. So, so I think, um, but at the same time, China is a massive marketplace. So, of course, the US and the West and the, you know, the Europeans want access to that market just from a purely economic standpoint. (laughs)
0: And it's important. And when you're thinking about these different players, it is, I think, important to just really visualize like a person making decisions for his own enrichment. Like I used to work in investment banking, and there were a couple of guys who were superstars who are still like their masters of the universe right now. They could probably find a list of 10 people who basically are the most influential in the financial system. And I remember how those guys thought, like they... They were geniuses where, when it came to the numbers and the money, and they had relationships with people like senators and stuff like that. They knew where the levers of power were. They were called up sometimes in advance. I, you know, I read later in the Wall Street Journal, like I knew that guy. He was in the room with Tim Geithner. Wow. And, uh, but they are they are just ruthlessly considering their bottom line for sure. So they are not thinking what is good for America. They are not thinking about some trilateral agenda. They are in place because they are making that bank the most money it can make, and that is consistent with the agenda, but yeah. it's uh, but that that money motive, I think, is what actually gets those guys to pull the you know to put the yeah. yoke on yeah. that pulls that engine forward okay. yeah, so, so if you're,
1: yeah, so if you're if you think <laughs> if you imagine that you have got you've got a different agenda certain if you've got a different agenda for example you want this this kind of global experiment you want to move towards a multipolar world order for example then people like that are very useful you don't have to change their minds you just need to use them to the best of their ability but right. direct their, sure. but direct their energy where you want it to go
0: right
1: so you don't you don't have to you don't have to tell them what you've got in your mind.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> just, for sure you, not.
1: Yeah. You you just need to let them do their thing, but do it do it the way that you want it to be done.
0: Yeah. So there's so
1: yeah. there's this there's this one of the one of the criticisms that I've had with writing about the multipolar world order is people say to me, well how can you both say that there's this overarching plan which I am suggesting, but at the same time you've got these conflicts for example, between Russia and Ukraine, or what looks like, you know, let's call it what it is, it's a proxy war between Russia yes. and NATO. Yes. Right? Yeah. So how can you have that happening at the same time as this like, well, of course, you know, people like you know, the Norman Dodds and the Reese Committee and so forth, There, when he was doing his investigation. So he's he exposed the fact that, right that yeah. war yeah war is often quite useful. War can be used as a catalyst for change, and there are people that quite like to encourage conflict because that's quite handy. and I'm not saying that's the case in in this case, but I'm just pointing pointing that out. So there may be a genuine conflict like there is a conflict between the upper echelons of management in a corporation. So a corporate you know in a corporate body the 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 board of directors might be frantically stabbing each other in the back because they all want to be ceo yeah but that doesn't mean that the board of trustees and the and the beneficial owners and the and the and the shareholders haven't got a completely separate agenda and are overlooking the whole thing I, and driving that forward
0: i have to say i can give you an example carrying on from that very specific thing i was thinking of when i was in investment banking and you know this guy is for sure master of the universe now there was one time that somebody from on high called that guy and said, "Stay away from that that fight." So it gave me the impression that all that infighting—you take what you you fight for the corners, you get what you want—and it looks like nobody's paying attention because that stuff is good for them. Competition like mm. creates, you know, yeah, yeah. like more wealth. But if something stepped over the line, only then do you say, you don't say here are the boundaries because then everybody knows what the boundaries are. If it steps over the line, you get a little slap down, keep it to yourself. Uh, I guess that didn't happen. But yes, that would be how it worked. And of course, war, you know, because we hate war, because death of little people is important to us because we're little people it doesn't mean that they think of it that way. Big T, they. It's not the worst thing that could happen. As a matter of fact, everybody gets rich in that level when you go to war. And then, of course, you also have the great benefits of... Um, accelerating the CBDC thing, uh, um, accelerating what might be a Petro one, which is you were talked about um, all that. And as soon as that stuff, I mean, I'm I'm not in the thick of it like you are, but just from a just a cursory view of somebody who's a little bit critical of the news, I was like, really? They're stealing their reserves. They're um, cutting them off of Swift. Doesn't that play exactly in their hands? Doesn't it encourage them to have um, you know off dollar? transactions with people like Iran and India and stuff like this is playing right into their hands.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the sanctions, I mean, I just want to quickly clarify on that thing. So if you've got the boardroom that are are stabbing each other in the back, but they all work for the same company, and none of them want to see the company fail, they'll all do their thing to ensure that the big project goes forward because that's in their best interests, but they can still have conflicts within it. And I think, and I think, what we're seeing at the moment is a transition from west to east. Yes, there is a conflict, uh, you know. You know, the focal point of that is Ukraine at the moment. But that doesn't mean that the overall project isn't going forward. And I think the overall project is is being facilitated at the moment, as you quite rightly said. By, I mean, let look. Let's look at the effect of the sanctions. I mean, they make no sense. They make no sense at all. Yes, they are going to impact on Russia. I mean, Russia's – Russia's. but even Foreign Policy magazine was saying that this is going to push Russia and China together. <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's yeah. obvious that it's going to push push Russia and China together. It's going to push the BRICS together. It's, it's uniting that kind of power structure in the face of an opposition which is – you know, for want of a better expression, the unipolar world order, or whatever people want to call it, the NATO alliance. Everything that 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 NATO alliance is doing, but and and the, the constituent members of that alliance are doing, is driving the Western economy down and lifting the Eastern economy at the same time. Now, why would I mean that? That, that just makes if you are, if you are a political leader of, you know, a big of a, of a leading nation state like France. the US, France, Germany, I mean Germany's Gosh. Germany's position is is
0: Merkel wouldn't do it. <laughs> I think she was just like, okay, I'm walking away with my legacy as is. Thanks anyway. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I mean, I certainly, I don't think it would have it would have panned out the way it has because I mean, Schultz is very weak, isn't he? So I mean, that's, yeah, I
0: mean, clearly, just it gave up on the North, so she would never do that. And no. I mean, I, I'm no fan of her. She capitulated a plenty, but she wasn't willing to just completely abandon Germany. That was—it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it makes no sense what they're doing. It's grain, it's the money, it's all the things that they're doing. They want to put gas um, caps, gas price caps on, oil price caps on. All that does is remove those resources from your marketplace and pushes mm-hmm, them and mm-hmm. so far below. Yellen wants to put a sixty dollar a barrel oil yeah. cap. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. So, and no. that.
1: But also, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, we're seeing, so, I mean, if we look at the way that OPEC is, is moving away from, away from the kind of US orbit and looking towards China and Russia, you've got Saudi Arabia. I mean, that remarkable, I don't know whether you saw it, where the the, the Saudi, uh, I think it was the Saudi ambassador was just refused to answer Reuters questions because he accused Reuters in a, in a debate of I'm basically stitching up the Saudis and they weren't interested anymore and I'm not answering your questions. Wow, no, I but, missed so, that. So, so, but I mean, you know, you've got people like Yellen saying, you know, we we demand that you that we cap the cap the oil price. I mean, it's it, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, it's like a, they've totally lost lost connection with reality because why why Would either the Saudis or the Russians consider that that, that they would allow that to happen? Why would they allow that to happen? They're the ones that are producing the oil.
0: (laughs) They're telling us, and I mean, they absolutely had to lay the groundwork for an incredibly stupid population, like incredibly stupid, because they're saying we're going to have a a consortium of the EU countries. We're all going to negotiate gas prices, gas purchases as a block. We are going to um, steal the foreign reserves, the U.S. reserves, hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves, and we're going to refuse to pay the contracts in rubles. I don't know if you noticed that little nuance. That's the problem. And they say that Russia is cutting off gas supplies. They, they, that is, from my research, that's not what was happening. They were having problems with the Nord Stream turbine. Now that the fucking thing blew up, you know, they're, they're doing it all on part, you know what I mean? Like every single thing, it just, it's an, it's maddening to me that they're feeding this line. And I guess from a perspective on the other side of the pond, you could tell me, I mean, are the people in the EU so stupid that they don't understand the illogic of this, or are they at the end of their ropes? Like my psyche is just trying to puzzle through it.
1: No, I think we've just seen big, big um, anti-war protests in Holland, and the French people are. I mean, the, the you know the French have obviously been protesting against this kind of thing for quite a long time. Although that seems to have subsided a bit now, but but um, you know, I, I don't think people aren't that dumb. Do you know, what I mean, people right. know know that they're being um, taken for a ride. Yeah, but okay. I mean, the, the the question is, what are we going to do about it? You know, I mean, yeah. and, and we are trapped in this in this. political paradigm that's given to us and we and and consequently people can't perhaps see a way out i mean the only the only way out is through the you know electoral politics and who are you going to vote for you know i mean we've got a situation at the moment where our the the uk unelected prime minister has just basically said that she's not interested in holding an election she's got no mandate and she doesn't want one she doesn't care so (laughs) so 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 you know and i mean this is a strange situation to find ourselves in and while all of this is happening but i mean at the bottom line of all this and i and this is the tragedy i mean this is the the worst part of it is that people are really going to suffer because of this in in, especially in europe i mean during this this winter the vulnerable vulnerable people are going to die they are going to die because of this you know i mean it's it's
0: well, they've been you know, the target all along. I mean, that COVID yeah, and the vax yeah. too are, are about vulnerable people. Report from Iron Mountain talks about that. The next war has to kill the same. weak, not the strong. It's always, it's always the
1: same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always the same. It's always the people that are least able to cope are the people that get well targeted. That's what it looks like, right? You know. So, so, you know, it's a terrible situation that we find ourselves in. But if you step back and look at the overall effect of what is happening the overall effect i mean let's say energy for example yeah the overall effect is to shift energy flows globally it's not just about it's not just about the relative price and so forth it's it's about where the energy is actually going now the energy at the moment is going to china china can't get enough it can't get enough coal it can't get enough oil and it can't get enough gas i mean the it is it is sucking up energy. Now, China's economy recently, because of crazy things like zero COVID policy, has <laughs> has started to started to slow down a bit. But nonetheless, there's still levels of growth there that we can't even possibly even hope to match. Now, Russia. Is quadrupling its supply to China, it's quadrupled its supply to yes, at capped, you know, it is it is subsidizing that to a certain extent. But Russia is rapidly moving towards a position where it won't need the European market. Now, when when that happens, I should add that another point at the moment, and this is disgusting, and I don't know whether you're aware of this. Russia is currently pumping 42 million cubic meters a day of gas through Ukraine into Western Europe. Gaz, Gazprom have just struck a you know, or or resolved uh, an issue with the Ukrainian national gas provider, which is I think is Nas, Nafgas, Nafgas. I think I'm not sure. i have probably got that wrong. And they and Russia is supplying gas. 42, I mean, this is a drop-off, because I mean normally it was up to about yeah. three hundred cubic yeah. meters cubic million cubits a day. But now it's putting through forty-two to fifty cubits million day. I mean, cubits isn't that why they
0: took Yanukovych out in the first place? Was it yeah, Yanukovych doing deals about, you know, gas and debt and yeah. you know, isn't that why they took him out in the first place? Is
1: that he was But the, he was, but, but the politicians are saying they can't stop a war? Right, they they're right. saying they can't stop a war, and they they're happy to kill each each right. other's populations, but they're doing gas deals.
0: Yeah, that's that's in that book, um, Guido Preparata's book, Conjuring Hitler, about how even during all of that, sixty million people being killed in World War mm. II, the money flows never stopped; were not yeah. interrupted. Yeah. And I and that was one of the earliest things because there was a call to action. There's seven calls to action on Johns Hopkins website about COVID, and one of them was to shore up the financial system so that no matter what happened, uh, money flows wouldn't stop. And I remember thinking maybe they're planning on a war, and they just need to make sure that that you know the pipes are in the ceiling, not on the floor. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like uh, energy is in that. Obviously, energy always is in that category of yeah. you know, up there with finance and defense. Um, and,
1: wow. and food, and, and energy, yeah. energy, food, money, water. These these are the right. things that 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 ultimately control us, aren't they?
0: And and actually, I mean that's interesting because what goes around Ukraine for the gas, the Nord Stream things, and the Turk the Turk Stream, Turkey wanted to be a hub yeah. for the gas, and that that pipeline was being sabotaged also. So they are sabotaging that, sabotaging that, yet yet Ukraine, you know, where they could most easily probably just blow that up or just turn it off, just say no. And they're not. And I always felt like that Ukraine and Syria thing were happening at the same time, you know, over the past decade, because those were important gas conduits to Europe up from like the Qatar, Iran, you know, whatever gas field there and then up from Ukraine. And I kind of lost sight of how essential that was to all of this because there's just so much noise around that war. But then Putin said, which something I had thought of earlier on was, and it seems so banal, but it's just, it's true or venal that they want LNG. You know, how could Europe possibly be a customer for us LNG? I mean, it's just, it's dangerous. It's expensive. The only way is if you cut off Russian gas.
1: Yeah, that's true. If you cut off Russian gas, but nor can Europe do that overnight. I mean, this is another problem as well. I mean, the amount of shipping you would need to ship over sufficient LNG from the from the, the US, but where's all the yeah. shipping? And shipping. those ships
0: are very special because LNG yeah, yeah. is pressurized gas. Pressurized gas that's liquefied. Yeah, yeah. Any and it's. A, I used to had a, had a briefly had a job in this um, as a analyst at Citibank right out of. College and the ha- this was one of the things I looked at, and like they're double hull ships. If like one drop of that stuff gets in there, uh, it expands yeah. and blows the whole thing up and blows the port up. There have been accidents, and I just yeah. was always like, LNG is just not a good thing. You have not- to really secure it.
1: Yeah, but I mean, there aren't enough Expensive. ships. There aren't enough ships at the moment to do that. For sure, not right. You There's nowhere near enough ships to, to. If you couldn't, you couldn't replace Europe's energy gas. Just, just gas. You couldn't, you couldn't replace Europe's gas requirements with LNG from the US. Now you might be able to in three or four years' time, but you need. But Europe doesn't have the gas storage capacity. Europe can't hasn't. It just doesn't have it. It, it doesn't it, physically not exist. Long ago
0: they were burning gas i mean gas it just shouldn't be that expensive and actually the uk mm-hmm. is talking about signing a 20 year lng deal did you see that that just yeah, came across yeah. so i mean i it is a long term <laughs> plan but i mean so this i the only reason i bring that up is that it really speaks to what you were saying earlier about how yeah there's big picture agendas i'm going to control the world i'm going to have like you know total surveillance at all time a, a currency that you can turn on and turn off if you're if you get out of line and all of that. And then you have Putin saying, Yeah, they just want the LNG business. You know, it's like it's it's crazy that those things are the are the two, you know, one thing yeah. that's like so draconian to us so and the other is just, just basic monetary greed. It, it's it yeah, bothers a mind. The, the
1: all these things are happening all at once, which is why yeah. it's all so, so fascinating.
0: <laughs> we gotta bring the bring the white pill in, not not because I uh you know. Not just gratuitously, but if there's if if this is all if this is where we're at and there's no hope whatsoever, then I love you, but I never want to talk to you again. And I'm just gonna spend my life drinking cocktails and (laughs) you know, finding a perch on the top of the mountain and just a hope that I'm far away enough that I can just watch it all burn and not burn down myself. But if it isn't totally hopeless, then we carry on. And where, you know, what is your, you know, what keeps you going, I guess, is is my question.
1: Well, I don't think it's hopeless at all. I don't, these are all, these are all aspirations that, you know, so for, you know, for example, introducing UBI and CBDC and having this global governance, this functioning global governance and all that kind of thing it it's it's all aspirational otherwise we wouldn't be going through what we're going through at the moment they're trying to install it because they don't they're not there yet and the solution to it is so simple it's so easy we just simply have to so just it's not just as simple as just saying no but we need to be more self-reliant. As If we start being more self-reliant and we start focusing on each other and focusing on the things that are important to us right here and right now, and we start you know, concentrating on things like how we're going to feed ourselves, how we're going to stay warm. If we grab really grab hold of those issues and we do what we need to do to look after ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities and our families, our families and our communities, if we all do that, they will become increasingly and increasingly irrelevant. And in a a generation, in a generation or two, there is no reason why we can't have changed everything simply by taking control of the things that are important to us on a daily basis.
0: I, I will, I will support that. I appreciate that. And I think evidence of it is that, uh, the propaganda machine is just so overwhelming. Like they don't stop. They can't stop. It's like a fire hose. And so that's a tell that they need our minds. Yeah. And then the other thing is they absolutely cannot do it without us being slaves to tech. That you have to be slave to tech or it's just they, or they have no power over you whatsoever. Screens are how they control the mind. So I can, I can deal with both of those things. I can turn both of those things off and it's not a bad idea to have your eyes on that prize. I know, uh, we're coming to the top of the hour and I, if you have anything else to add, that's great. I'd love to hear it. And I also would like you to tell people kind of what you're working on, where they can find you and if we can have uh, at least one more of these conversations.
1: Yeah, no, I'll be delighted. Um, Yeah, you can find me at my website, which is, um, as I said, it's Ian with an I, I -I I-A-I-N-Davis.com. My
0: favorite reading, for sure, are your articles. I really look forward to them.
1: Oh, well, it's very kind of you to say, so I appreciate it. really true. You can get my book for free on my website. It's um, it's, not the hardback, but the the PDF version, and there are other books on there that I've written um, and series that I've written that I've put into PDF bundles that people can get for free as well. Um yeah, and so just, just check me out there and um uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and my handle is underscore all one word in this together. And that's me.
0: Fantastic. Well it has been such a pleasure. Ian Davis, thank you so much for joining us.